For Manchester Bidwell Corporation in Pittsburgh, I'm Jonathan Zito. There are a handful of people still here who have been actively part of what we do from the early days. One of those people is Marty Ashby, the executive producer and creator of MCG Jazz. Manchester Craftsman's Guild has had a variety of facets and iterations over the decades, but MCG Jazz has been a cornerstone program since the mid-80s. As you'll hear in my conversation with Marty, the journey he went through to show up at this brick building on the north side of Pittsburgh was anything but a straight line. It really is a fascinating retrospective, with its own emotional poignancy for a man whose life's work suddenly crystallized, then developed, and ultimately flourished here. A performer, a producer, an educator, and an artist all rolled into one. To sit down and talk with Marty about really anything is to find yourself having a conversation in earnest. I grew up in central New York, a little tiny town called Baldwinsville, which is uh, oh, about 15, 20 minutes outside of Syracuse, right in the center okay. of the state. A lot of you know, a lot of, a lot of cornfields, man, mm. and uh, strawberry picking and uh, an awful lot of baseball. So were uh, you pretty rural? Out, out um, it's, I mean, it's, it's technically a suburb of Syracuse, okay. but that is rural right, right. <laughs> by definition. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it was pretty rural. Um, and, you know, I kind of grew up with two things, baseball and, and playing music. Mm. Um, so was music from the beginning already in the house? Yeah, so my dad... Uh, had a music store okay. um, and had about 60 students each week teaching guitar. Wow. And had a band. One-on-one lessons that many? Yeah. Yeah. How did he run a store and do that much? Yeah, it was, and they were half-hour lessons back wow. in the day. Um, so he, yeah, it was quite amazing. Um, I'm, I'm going to jump ahead here, but when he got the flu one time when I was in undergrad, I had to come home to teach the students because, you know, he needed, you know, we needed the money. Right. Um, and after that week of teaching those students, I really realized that I was not going to become a guitar teacher, mm. you know, so I don't know how he did it, but he did. And was so, he teaching like all levels too? Yeah. I mean, I would say 70% beginners, mm-hmm. you know, relatively new, you know, a lot of kids, but he had adult students. He had some professional students, you know, professional musicians that would come and just learn the way he approached certain tunes. Mm. Um, you know, was that had, happening in the shop or was that happening at home? Uh, initially at the shop when he had the music store downtown on the four corners next <laughs> to the bakery. Um, but then he let that go after a while and just basically and did uh, students okay. at the house and built a studio downstairs. But he was always a working musician and had a band. Okay. And so it was, you know, hundreds of, you know, weddings and parties and wow. bar mitzvahs. All jazz or? It's, it, more like a society band, okay. to be honest. But his, you know, slant, as I was getting older, being a teenager, um, became more and more jazz because Bossa Nova hit oh, okay. in the '60s, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? And uh, but he grew up playing a lot of country music, and you know, Chet Atkins, and he won. This is a great story. In 1945, I believe, or '46, uh, it was after the war, so '46. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a thing on. TV called the Ted Mac Amateur Hour. Okay, I'm sure none of our listeners are old enough to know that, <laughs> but uh, it was the precursor to the you know the Ed Sullivan Show and things like that. Right, right, so right, it was right. in the 40s, and what would happen is the audience around the country would write in who they thought was you know the top news star that was on that um, hour show, 
So dad went to New York and did his singing cowboy yodeling thing mm -hmm. with guitar and yodel and won the show. Wow. And um, it's a fascinating story. So part of the deal was you got a recording contract. And so he and my uncle apparently went back, you know, some months later to do, you know, sign the recording deal and all that. They promptly got mugged on the street in Manhattan and turned around and went home. And that was it. That was it. They never. He never. I mean, he did other recordings and did right, things right. in central New York. And Jimmy Ashby and the Trouble Tones became quite a big hit locally. Mm. But his national recording career at age whatever, 17, when right. he won. He uh, was only 17. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And just never, it, it never picked back up again. It, well, it, it was one of those things that if this what is if this is what it means to be in New York and doing this I'm going home wow you wow. know so when you're when you're a kid are you seeing these musicians coming and going oh yeah there the were time? jam sessions in our house mm. pretty much every every other weekend if not every weekend yeah. sometimes and and um, so was this happening before you were even born so you were like oh, yeah. you were like just in it yeah from the beginning yeah and my dad taught my mom how to play bass okay so that she could be on so the gates join in, yeah. you know and do it so by the time i was uh so i was seven um i got the mumps mm -hmm. now no one knows what that is anymore either <laughs> but you blow up like a chipmunk yeah and your glands swell and you have to stay home from school for two weeks mm -hmm. no one gets it anymore but you did back then right but you're not that sick okay you know i mean you, you don't feel great but you're really contagious right and so my dad said, well, you're going to be home for two weeks. Um, you want to learn how to play the guitar? Mm. So those two weeks, you know, I got <laughs> multiple lessons a day. Yeah. And never looked back after that. And, wow. and three months later, I was playing gigs with him. How old were you then again? I, I just turned eight for turned my eight. first gig. Do you remember before then, like, seeing people play music and thinking, I want to do that? Or was it kind of just assumed being in Ashby means no, you're going to do it. No, it, it was just always in the house. Mm. My brother had started playing, my older brother playing drums a little bit at that time um, because my dad also, his drummer taught um, drum lessons on Saturdays at the house mm. as well. Mm -hmm. So he started playing drums and my um, younger brother was, you know, he was only five. And, mm. um, you know, at the time, I think I was more interested in baseball, to be honest. Okay. Um, but then once... I had a little proficiency on the guitar, which came really easily. Mm. Um, it was like, oh, this is pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, my dad had a special Rickenbacker guitar built mm -hmm. for me. There's a three-quarter size. Okay, and, yeah, yeah. Um, and then we would do things with just my brothers and I. So we were like the pre-show before some of dad's gigs. We would do this like little dinner show set for 20 minutes just the three of us yeah how old were y'all then so i was eight yeah, so Still, I, oh that young yeah. you're already oh, yeah. performing yeah. when we wow. started and there's a great photo which maybe we can post yeah that'd be great of our first family gig because mm. uh, it was in the newspaper okay and so i actually got the original photo and uh, my brother was six i was eight and my older brother was 10 i mm. believe nine or nine or ten not okay. ten ten he would have been ten did it did that feel like the start of something once you were sort of playing oh, yeah. performing wise? Did oh, it kind of yeah. got that bug pretty early? Yeah, it was it was clear that music was going to be 
um, an important part of my life, mm. you know, forever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, while at the time, I don't think I decided that I was going to be a professional musician and do all the other stuff around right, music. Right. You know, and I was eight years old. Right. You know? right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I was, you know, <laughs> you know, I still played with Play-Doh. Right. You know? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it was clear that I had, a, you know, God-given gift that mm. made it easy for me mm. to, mm. you know, um, to play and, and kind of relate to it. Um, and it, you know, it was, it was a journey like anything else, sure. but the, I didn't realize that every family didn't do that together mm. somewhere in the back of my mind. Right. Cause you know, we were kind of like the partridge family, right? You right. know, we're every weekend we'd play a, a gig or two, mm. you know, and there was always music around and I just thought, well, everybody plays that way. Mm. And you know, it's what's informed this whole jazz's life thing that mm -hmm. I've kind of developed over the last 25 years yeah. that I just thought, well, of course you treat people the way you want to be treated because that's what we did on the bandstand. Right. If my dad had played something, I would play back to him what I thought he'd want me to play. And so we were kind of living the golden rule on the bandstand mm. of treat mm -hmm. people the way you want to be treated. And we just did it musically. Yeah. And I just assumed everybody did that. So. Right, 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 right. Do you do you remember what kind of songs you were playing back then? Oh yeah, we we're you know everything from you know Hello Dolly to September Song to mm. uh, uh, Days of Wine and Roses, and then we'd play polkas because my dad could could uh, yeah, he played the accordion and the guitar. Oh wow! And um, he would call square dances because he was a square dance caller. So we would you know at a wedding, for instance. You know, we played dinner music, and then there'd be maybe a set of uh, 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 four squares, as it would be, for mm. square dance. Mm -hmm. um, and then we'd play the hokey pokey and whatever else people wanted. Yeah. Everybody loves somebody sometime. A lot of Dean Martin um, tunes. Um, and then later on, when we got into high school and stuff, uh, we would start playing a lot of bossa novas, mm. you know, because mm -hmm. the Joe Beam uh, Stan Getz, Astro Gilberto phase hit right. in, in the early 60s, mid 60s. So, you know, by the time I was in high school, 69, 70, uh, we were playing a lot of bossa novas then too. Hmm. So by the time you're in high school, is it, is it, is the track focusing for you a bit more? Like, yeah, it definitely was. Yeah. Um, cause I was, you know, of course my, my dad was an entrepreneur before that, that, uh, term was used mm, you know mm -hmm. uh so he'd create all kinds of um, gig opportunities for himself he also had a tv repair business on the side when we were real little he wow. also drove a school bus you know i mean and, and so i ha i got that innately and so even in high school i was booking my own bands and playing for honor society dances and openings of you know shopping malls and mm. um stuff like that and and I wanted to be a marching band when I got to, you know, what is junior high, what they call middle school now. And of course the guitar was not really a marching band sure. acts. Right, know? right, so right, right. My brother played trombone and my other brother was a drummer. So the, the band director who was a good friend of the family said, man, we need a tuba player. So he taught me tuba mm. over one summer between my like sixth grade and seventh grade. Uh, he taught me tuba and, uh, it actually 
was fantastic for me because mm. it helped my reading as a guitar player. Okay. Um, I could play in band and wind ensemble and orchestra, um, you know, because I had some kind of natural music abilities. It came really easily for mm-hmm. me. And uh, in fact, spin the tape forward. When I went to undergrad, I was a guitar and tuba major. Hmm. Crazy. That's right? such an interesting sort of like switch too, because I feel like, and maybe I'm wrong, but my sense is that a tuba is a simpler melody generally than what maybe a violin or a trumpet is, is maybe doing kind of holding that. Yeah, it's a supportive yeah. for the most part. And then you have, and then a guitar generally is really driving a lot of what's happening in the music. So when you were doing that, were you finding different parts of your brain engaging the music in different ways? No question. Um, the, you know, the, the tuba's role, at least largely in the music that I was playing at the time, yeah. you know, concert band music right, and right, marching right, band music. Right. And, Here's your five notes. You know, some hip like, wind ensemble, you know, you know, it was yeah. a lot of that. But yes. my high school band director, Norman Wanzer, um, uh, graduated from Eastman and could play every instrument impeccably well, hmm. um, really challenged us with some amazing wind ensemble music. Um, and so the, the supportive role of the tuba expanded a little bit for me, but it, it played a role in what I ended up, if you will, kind of being my specialty on the guitar. Mm. Um, because, you know, back in the day, everybody was, you know, wanting to solo and right, you right. Know, be Led Zeppelin and, you know, or mm. in the jazz world, be Joe Pass or whatever. Right. I always enjoyed being the accompanist. Mm and what we call comping and playing Brazilian grooves. And while it's fun to solo, and obviously I do that a lot, if I had a pick, I would be the accompanist mm. and be supportive of the soloist. And I think playing the tuba really helped to reinforce mm. that somehow, mm-hmm. that there's a real art to right. making the music grow um, and get richer and, and, and be all that it can be, the sum of its parts, you know, mm-hmm. if, if that supportive base is there. So tuba, in hindsight, <laughs> was yeah. a great axe for me. Oh, that's interesting. That's really interesting. So after high school, college? Yeah, so I, you know, I, again, I, 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 was, I was blessed because I was innately smart. Mm-hmm. And I was in elementary school, put in with what they call the accelerated kids, mm. you know? And, uh, so when I, you know, and you took algebra and bio and, you know, I don't know, first grade, I don't know where it was, but yeah. you, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. you, you yeah. did it really early and you did all that stuff. So to make a long story short, uh, I graduated high school in, th- in three years. Okay. Um, because by the time I was a freshman, so- sophomore, mm. uh, which was in that case, my second to last year of high school, I knew that I wanted to do music. Mm. Um, there was a time when I thought baseball, because I was pretty good. I was a pitcher and I was, you know, on varsity. And, you know, when I was 12, 13, um, I was really, really good. Mm. Um, but as I got older and the other kids got bigger mm. and I was spending time playing, you know, tuba and percussion and gigs and guitar, mm-hmm. and I didn't have as much time to, um, focus on baseball if I wanted to take it to the next place. Mm-hmm. So I knew pretty clearly that I was going to pursue music. And I, there was no reason to stay in high school. 
you right, know, right. I mean, I had the grades right. and, um, I, you know, to spend another year, my, 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 I, I found this a couple of years ago and as we were sorting through boxes, my junior year, which was my senior year, um, the second half of the year, I had one class, which was an English class that you had to take because mm -hmm. I'd already finished just the science and math. So mm -hmm. I already did all I needed. And I had band, orchestra, chorus, um, independent study, jazz arranging, um, and one other music class. That's all I had. Wow. And I got out of gym because I was a pitcher. So the gym teacher would let me go and play catch during gym class. <laughs> I mean, it was a, you know, I mean, it was a small school. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> you could yeah. do those things. Yeah. Um, yeah, I never had to do the swimming thing. I never had to do any of that, mm. you know. So why, you know, why stay in school when I knew I wanted to, you know, get good at playing this music? Mm. Was jazz in the picture yet for you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was in the jazz band. That was the other class, jazz band. Jazz band um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I was, you know, deep into uh, jazz music. But I also got into, when I was, I think, in eighth grade, yeah, because I studied with him for three years. I got into classical guitar because mm. my dad didn't play classical guitar. Okay. Um, so I found a teacher through a recommendation in North Syracuse, and his name was Dr. Ronald Sauer, and he studied with Andre Segovia, mm. which, if for those of you that don't know, one of the true masters of the guitar ever, and he studied in Spain with Segovia, and he was, you know, Dr. Sauer, and he was rough, but... I learned a lot about playing the guitar mm. and that's how I got into undergrad because in those days, um, there was only, I think two schools in the country. You could even think about majoring in jazz. Mm. Uh, jazz was still a four letter word. Right. And so, uh, Ithaca college where I got my undergrad, I went there because I knew the guitar teacher, Steve Brown. I had him in an all state. He was the guest conductor. And I just said, man, I want to play like him. Mm. So he was the jazz guitar teacher and ran the jazz band and all that. But there was no jazz degree. Mm. So I got in as a classical guitar and tuba major. And then was jazz kind of your dark secret while you were? Oh, no, no, man. I mean, the jazz majors, jazz majors, the jazz musicians. Right. Were, um, were, were venerated there. Mm, interesting. You just couldn't major in it uh so was that a a clash of popular taste and kind of institutional momentum sure. if you will sure well ithaca college started as a music conservatory mm. and you know in the conservatory there's no jazz, there's jazz you know, right, right right god forbid right right so fortunately that has changed right in the last 40 some odd years but then you could play jazz. There was a jazz ensemble. There was a vocal jazz ensemble. Mm. Um, and the vocal jazz ensemble, I, as a freshman, made it into that band as part of the band that mm. played with them, which was a godsend because it later became the New York Voices. Oh. That's where the New York Voices oh, wow. started. Okay. We were all together at Ithaca yeah. in the vocal jazz ensemble. Okay. And it was kind of my band with all these other vocalists, and that eventually became the New York Voices. Wow. Um, yeah. Do you remember? Do you remember the kind of? So you're doing like classical. You're doing bossa nova. You're doing kind of standards. You're you know doing what people want to hear at a given event. Sure. And then, do you, but do you remember when 
or like a moment or a song or, or, or something like that where jazz suddenly jumped to the top of the kind of the top of the pile for you? Yeah, I think that happened in high school. Um, because again, my, my, both my band directors, Bill Cantwell in junior high, um, and, uh, Norm Wanzer in high school, um, really had us playing very sophisticated jazz mm. music and jazz mm -hmm. ensemble. And, um, I remember going to the record store and, you know, getting everything from Stan Kenton, you know, to Maynard Ferguson, to Duke Ellington and really checking it out. And, um, then I got turned on to all the great guitar players you know, like Barney Kessel and Wes Montgomery and Kenny Burrell and Herb Ellis. And it just opened up my mind is mm. because I didn't know the guitar could do that. Mm. You know, when I, I remember hearing Wes and thinking, what in the world is mm. that? Mm -hmm. You know? <laughs> and so then when I got to college, uh, you know, you gotta remember I'm from rural central New York. Right. Um, at Ithaca College, even though it's, you know, relatively rural itself, where it's where the setting is, a lot of the folks that went to Ithaca then were from New York and Long Island in much more urban environments. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I got my buck kicked by a lot of these musicians that really played great and had more historical context for jazz. Mm. Mm -hmm. Um you know, maybe they didn't have, you know, as, as many hours on the bandstand. Right, as right, I had. right. But uh, so it was, a, it, it kind of pushed me to get into the, the, the kind of the depths of jazz. And I remember, you know, we'd go get all the latest new records and, and transcribe stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, it was, it was a fun time. Yeah. So when you were in college and you were sort of honing, this sort of jazz priority, what were you thinking professionally? Were you thinking just like touring musician? Yeah, I think everybody, you know, goes into it to become a big star in the mm -hmm. music, you know, mm -hmm. you know, or at least most people do, you know, you want to be the next Pat Metheny or whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was different for me because I entered as guitar and tuba major technically as a music ed major. It was mm. called a, a performance in ed. It was a five-year program okay. where you got two degrees, one in performance and one in music ed. Uh, so I started, you know, freshman year and, you know, took minor, you know, I have to play all the instruments. Mm. So, you know, clarinet and this and that. And I got to my sophomore year and uh, I said, no, this is not this is not working for me. Mm. I don't want to play the violin and the, this and oh, that, geez. Yeah. you know, and so you needed to, they wanted you to become like the teacher you had had who could play right. Literally everything. Right. 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 And it's like, no, that's not my bag, mm -hmm. you know? And so I started, um, my band, which was called Aurora and started booking gigs and playing, you know, around and, um, you know, it worked out pretty well. I was playing a lot. You know, everything from Dixieland gigs on tuba, you mm -hmm. know, to... So were you, you were playing tuba as much as you were doing everything else the whole time in college? I, I, my first two years in first college, years. yes. Yeah. I was, you know, because I, I was a tuba major, right, too. Right. Stayed, studied with Dave Unlin, who was one of the great tubists ever. Mm. Came from the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra to take the gig and, you know, it was unbelievable. Uh, and I enjoyed the tuba. It was, it was, it's, a, it's a great axe. Um, but I found I couldn't play the guitar play the tuba, do the schoolwork, 
play all these gigs. Um, and then I, 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 I had a kind of a moment because I was, you know, I was pissed that I couldn't do more with jazz, mm -hmm. you know. Because um, it was still kind of up on your own terms to make it yeah. as much of a priority as you yeah, wanted. Yeah, I had to fit that yeah, in, yeah. in between right. studying my etudes and my tuba lesson. Mm -hmm. and No credit no credit for your jazz. Right. And, right, you right, know, right. I did, yeah, one credit for vocal jazz ensemble, you mm -hmm. know. and uh, But, yeah, that's what I was doing all the time mm -hmm. and making money. And, and I, you know, worked for a booking agency out of Syracuse and all this stuff and uh, booked my band for the summer. We'd be playing at the Thousand Islands Resort up in the St. Lawrence Seaway mm. for, you know, two months and stuff. But I was really annoyed with, frankly, the, the, the teachers and what I was being forced to take. Mm. And I, you know, I went through that phase that I thought I knew more than the teachers, you know, right, right. you know, which I guess, you know, a lot of people go through sure, at some point. Sure. And I said, screw it. I'm not doing this. Yeah. And my roommate band member at the time uh, had a farm. His dad had a farm in Kempton, Pennsylvania, which is right near Pottstown, mm -hmm. where Yingling beer is made, by okay. the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I found out very quickly. <laughs> um, and so I left school mid-semester of my junior year and uh, moved to the farm. Mm. Now... I was on basically a full scholarship. In fact, I got the Chuck Mangione scholarship mm. at Ithaca because there's no way we could have afforded it. Right, right. Had I not got the scholarship, I would not have been at Ithaca. Right. Um, um, and I think my parents and probably my brothers too thought I had gone over the deep end. Mm. You know, um, But in hindsight, it was exactly the right thing to do. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I went and lived on the farm and got a gig teaching at the music store, local music store, and, and played some gigs and um, very quickly realized that I was, A, not smarter than my teachers, mm. and B, that was a, not a great move, mm. you know. Um, so I kind of appealed to Steve Brown, who was my teacher, guitar teacher, um, to see if they would allow me to do my junior recital in the summer. And, you know, I took a class at CCAC, kind of the, the equivalent of that in Syracuse to make my credits be what they needed to be mm -hmm. and all that stuff. But I, I came and, and that all worked. Okay. And I got, I got back to school the following fall, but I was able to create the, BFA jazz studies degree mm. when I came back because I produced on um, IC, WICB TV mm -hmm. uh, 26 half hour jazz TV shows. Wow. Um, my uh, end of my sophomore and my junior year. Um, and it's come to find out one of the guys that was the director now is like a big Hollywood. <laughs> Of you know, film producer, mm. and so I had a great crew, and I was the talent guy, of course, and put all of it together and produced these half-hour shows. And I had guests come in when they were in town, and mm. you know, all kinds of crazy stuff, man. Um, so I was doing that. I was doing this art thing. I was taking taking art class. Uh, wrote this great paper about how Frank Lloyd Wright is one of the greatest jazz musicians of our mm. time, mm -hmm. which actually got me out of school. And I was creating other stuff that was related to jazz, 
um, and related to art, mm-hmm. right? As opposed to some of the other stuff that I was kind of being forced to take. So with Steve's help, we created this Bachelor of Fine Arts Jazz Studies. Mm. So I came back to school for my last year and basically created my own curriculum. Wow. Um, and that program went on for 26 years. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's now it's morphed into something else, which right. of course over time I'm surprised it lasted that long mm-hmm. to be honest. But mm-hmm. it was the one of the first jazz studies uh, specific programs uh, in the country like that. It was of course the first one at Ithaca, mm-hmm. you know, where jazz the four letter word was right. actually in a course in a, in a degree. Mm-hmm. I mean, go figure. Right? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so my undergrad is BFA jazz studies. Okay. So it's interesting too because I I wonder how much seeing kind of the scrappiness of your dad's career probably informed you either subconsciously or maybe consciously at the time, like you kind of make the world you live in. And so getting that space from school maybe gave you the sort of bandwidth to think, Hey, wait a minute. Could we do something? Mm-hmm. Could we do something different? Yeah. 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 It, it, you know, again, uh, you know, my brothers tease me about it every now and then it's, you know, about, uh, going and living on a farm, you know, in the, in the middle of really rural Pennsylvania. Yeah. And, you know, it was one of those aha moments mm. that I just saw another path yeah. then that I couldn't see because I was in the heat of the battle. You right, know? right, right. And, uh, it, you know, it, it prompted me to do even other things. I started producing the Ithaca Jazz Festival, mm. and we, we did that for three, four years in a row. And the, the motivation was I was so tired of playing smoky bars because in those days they were you know you had to like, oh, yeah. take your clothes off when you came home from a <laughs> right, gig right right but i had been doing that since i was eight years old mm. man you know when yeah. we're playing the moose club and the, this club and the, that club in central new york you know i mean they're they were it's great experience but they're all kind of glorified gin mills right you know? right um you know even back in the th- that day weddings and stuff you know people smoking everywhere right. and i was just so tired of playing smoky bars mm, um mm-hmm. so i started producing festivals because mm. on festivals you know it's a whole nother thing right. it's a concert there's not just, people aren't smoking or it's an outdoor festival right. um and it was you know fascinating you know in those days way pre-email and internet and all that mm, you did it mm-hmm. with a phone call and letters to people to yeah you know, I remember Frank Malfitano, who produces to this day the Syracuse Jazz Festival, uh, you know, a friend of my dad's, you know, I called him and said, hey, Frank, um, can you help me? I want to, and he, he did, you know, cats love to talk about what they do. Right, 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 <laughs> right, know? right, yeah. Right? And so, you know, I've calling up Helen Keene, who was Bill Evans' manager and brought Paquito de Rivera to the U.S. And, I, and I'm calling her up and saying, mm. um, excuse me, but I'm, I'm Marty Ashby and I'm here in Ithaca and I want to produce this festival and I really love Paquito's music. Um, do you think he would come and play the festival? I mean, it was that <laughs> yeah, that yeah. bold and that literal. Yeah. You know, and one thing led to another and, and started producing a lot of festivals and concerts and, and, and things like that. And, you know, that's kind of where... The, the music playing and producing, mm. presenting, you know, being a Gemini, I could do both, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. But that's why they kind of came to a head. Right, right. So bridge the gap for me, though, from that 
very young, sort of green, but ambitious to, you know, MCG. We don't have to talk about MCG quite yet, but bridge that gap. Where, where are we going? Like, what are the, the kind of the, the markers from, I'm going to make a, you know, festival to, I'm going to start a jazz program in Pittsburgh. What, what's that trajectory look like? Yeah, it, it, it was very organic, man. You know, to get from, you know, being a kid on the bandstand to, you know, kind of creating a program at Ithaca so I could learn what I wanted to learn, mm -hmm. you know, to producing my own festivals so I didn't have to be in smoky bars as much. Um, I kind of knew the next step would be go play in a bigger pond. Mm. So after I graduated Ithaca, um, I moved to New York. Okay. Um, you know, of course, chasing a girl. Um, but it, it was also an incredible move for me. Now, let me paint the picture. I'd never been to New York in my life. Really? No. Um, and I had about $350 in my pocket and my 71 Mercury Montego, <laughs> right? Um, and I moved to New York. What year was this? Well, I graduated in, so it was the 81, mm. yeah, yeah. So 80s New York, yeah. too. Yeah, 80s New York, yeah. which, you know, 42nd Street was still 42nd Street. Right, you know? right, right. I mean, <laughs> you know, take your life in your hands. Right. You know, uh, tons of crime, craziness. Mm. I got wild stories about that, but. Did you, already, did you already know the story of your dad going to New York and getting mugged and deciding to? I, I, I did was that but in your mind it no no okay it really wasn't it, i mean it is now right you know as i go back and think about it it's like wow um but i was always you know i was probably why bill strickland and i get along so well because no was not an option for mm. me mm -hmm. you know it's just no i'm I, okay i i don't know new york from anything mm -hmm. um and that worked to my advantage because i didn't know what i didn't know right you know, right, so right, I right. couldn't be afraid about everything because I just didn't know what I didn't know. Right. So, you know, I, I moved there uh, with Kimmy and, um, you know, fortunately, I got an apartment in the same building and I connected with a, uh, uh, a musician that I worked with in Ithaca that had moved back to New York. And so Fred and I got that apartment and. He was an engineer at Regent's Sound Studio, mm -hmm. recording uh, studio. And, uh, you know, one thing led to another, and I got a gig working for this company that produces, uh, like, street fairs. Mm -hmm. And they ma managed an art gallery as well. I was playing gigs. Um, some of the musicians that I met through Ithaca, it, there were solos, Claudio Roditi being one of them. Mm -hmm. And it took me under his wing, and we started playing some gigs. Um, and um, I was, you know, produced this uh, uh, forty-block street fair that I turned into a jazz festival. Wow! And then I ended up producing the Boys Choir of Harlem Festival. And um, but I, I, you know, it's it's Manhattan, right? Yeah. So crazy expensive. Right. 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 And um, you know, I'd go to some of these jam sessions, and cats would. It felt to me that cats were playing circles around. Mm. You know, these cats were, you know, they were hungry. Right, right. It was New York, you know, that back when 7th Avenue South and the Brecker Brookers Club and, you know, McKell's and all these clubs mm -hmm. were, I'd go here, 
Parkito and this screaming, mm. just so energy. And, and it's like, I felt, man, I, wow, I don't know if I can hang up mm. in here musically. Uh, but I did and played gigs and, you know, had some fun and um, still kept producing. But, you know, I still needed more bread because, right. you know. Um, so there was a little ad in the Village Voice that said, uh, sell uh, classical music. Hmm. I said, well, I know a bunch about that. I got some piece of paper that tells me I do, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I'll never forget, this is a visual image to this day I still see. It was selling for the New York Philharmonic. Hmm. And so I walked into Avery Fisher Hall, uh, where Janet Lincoln Center is, and um, got in the elevator, floor three, whatever, and there was a, another kid about my age, probably, that had a big stack of music in his hand. He got in the elevator, and I said, hey, man. So I go on the fourth floor to see whoever, Mrs. whatever. He said, yeah, that's right. And I said, well, what do you do, man? He said, oh, well, I, I put the music out on the stands for the orchestra. I said, you do what? I said, that's a gig? And he said, oh, yeah, I'm the associate assistant, you know, whatever, music supervisor, librarian or something. Mm. And I said, so your gig is to put the music on the stand for the orchestra. He said, yeah. I said, okay, man, have a great day. So I got the gig selling subscriptions um, and moved up in the ranks very quickly. Mm-hmm because I wasn't selling what they wanted me to sell. I was selling a conversation about the music that mm-hmm. I loved, because mm-hmm. I love classical music too. Mm-hmm. So it was really easy for me. Right, right. You know? And you know, selling thousands and thousands of dollars on these, you know, f- before telemarketing was a four letter word, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the aha moment was, there's this amazing business infrastructure around classical music. Mm which I knew, but I right, didn't right. know. Yeah, <laughs> you know? right. And I'm saying, wait a minute, I'm playing on the street in front of Bryant Park with, you know, basically David Sanborn's rhythm section for maybe $75, mm. you know, mm-hmm. on the street. <laughs> and then there's this cat that puts the music on the stands. So jazz, the dichotomy of, you know, classical music and opera and theater and ballet and mm-hmm. dance, they had these huge business structures that was not in jazz mm. anywhere that I could tell. Right, 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 right. So again, you know, had, there, is, had there ever been? Well, you know, there's some big jazz festivals that have a in- infrastructure. Mm-hmm. You know, Monterey, Newport, yeah. some of the ones in Europe. But in terms of an institution, right, right, I couldn't find any. Man. Mm. Um, so, you know, long story short, I moved into management and and eventually. Um, but all for classical still yes. at that point. Right? Yeah. And still doing these other things in New York. Mm-hmm. And then they made me an offer to go manage the whole campaign for the Cleveland Orchestra. Mm. And it was a company called Arts Marketing out of Toronto that did this for all kinds of organizations. And, you know, the girl thing wasn't going so well by then. And, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I said, yeah, I'm going. Mm-hmm. I'd had enough of Manhattan. Right. I'm right. glad I lived there for that two, three years that I lived there mm-hmm. is an experience I would not change for, because I'm not afraid of New York. I right. go to New York now and it feels like I'm kind of going home right, a little right, bit. Right, right, right. So I moved to Cleveland and, and um, you know, I had 60 staff and uh, um, made a boatload of money 
boatload of money mm. and kept producing little festivals, playing in clubs mm. and really kind of learning. But now all in Cleveland now. All in Cleveland. Mm. I moved from New York right. and split. Um, um, and it was, it, was, it was a great move, man. It was a great move because I started to learn even more about other, you know, we did a little thing for Playhouse Square. I, I filled in for somebody at the National Symphony in Washington for, um, you know, three weeks. You know, I just learned some of the business infrastructure mm -hmm. for performing arts organizations. Mm, right. You know? So I got on the job training and got my, you know, my PhD and, and that by right, right, being right. around it, yeah. you know, and just, you know, I'd sit with a marketing director, uh, um, of the orchestra and, um, you know, talk with him about the strategy for subscription sales marketing mm -hmm. and fund development mm -hmm. and with a development director. And so that was really cool. And I, I was learning a lot, but then came a moment and the orchestra wanted us, Robin Troop was my partner there, uh, brilliant man at this stuff um, they wanted us to sell more and, and they didn't want us to have these long involved conversations about the music mm. they wanted us to just do more and more numbers and I quit mm. <laughs> <laughs> again you know family was like yo bro <laughs> you're turning away that kind of bread I said no man I am I'm not doing that right it, I, 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 that's not why I'm in this. Right, right. You know, it's, yeah, the money's great, you know, but I, I am having, teaching people to have conversations about the music. Right. To engage them to become patrons of this music. Takes a minute. <laughs> yeah, man, <laughs> it takes a minute, A, and B. It's not about the numbers game. Right, right. It's about creating a long-term relationship with someone that you can engage with this music in a meaningful way. Right, right. Now, of course, you know, to the, you know, the you know, pencil pushers in the orchestra. Right. Uh, in, the, in the office, they didn't get that. Mm. But they also don't even listen to the music. Mm, right, right. So I just, the, the, the uh, hypocrisy of that, mm. I said, no, screw it. Yeah. And at the time, um, we were going to, your, I had a, like a, month-long gig booked with the New York Voices mm -hmm. and my band Aurora. And we were going to play uh, these festivals. And we played the North Sea Festival. We played the Montreux Jazz Festival. I mean, it was glorious. Mm -hmm. And I had that booked in for the spring or summer. I think it was July. Um, so I quit two days before Christmas. Wow. <laughs> literally. literally. <laughs> and it you know, drove home yep. for Christmas. Yep. And, you know, cats are thinking, man, are you out of your yeah. mind? How old are you at this point? Uh, early 20, like 23. Mm -hmm. um, you know, not that far out of high school, 24 probably. Because, yeah. um, again, I graduated high school early. So I was, you know, I was in it early. And uh, on, it was the day after Christmas. Um, I got a call from um, Dennis Vest. He was the development director at the Pittsburgh Symphony. Mm. And Lou Spisto was the marketing director. And Dennis calls me and said, um, hi, this is blah, blah, blah. Um, we understand you might be available. 
Hmm. True story. Yeah. And I guess my partner, Robin, at the Cleveland Orchestra, um, uh, somehow got that word to them. Hmm. And so Robin was coming to work with the Pittsburgh Symphony as well, because hmm. we both kind of quit di- differently, but... Um, but for similar reasons. Similar reasons, yeah. yeah. And uh, I said, well, yeah, yeah, but I don't, I don't, I don't really want to get back into the orchestra thing, you mm. know. But and they said, well, we we understand what what you did in in Cleveland, and um, we want you to know that our approach here is going to be very different. Mm. I said, yeah, no, nah, man, I did. <laughs> and they said, well. And I said, listen, I'm leaving in a week to go to Europe because I was going over to do some prep work and, and work some stuff out. Um, and they said, well, let us fly you into Pittsburgh on your way. And it's a true story, man. We met in the old airport in the U.S. Air Club. Mm. That's where I did the interview on my way to Europe. Wow. That's <laughs> great. <laughs> Dennis Vest, Luz Bisto. And uh, they convinced me. They mm. did a good job. Mm. You know, I mean, there was considerable bread on the table, needless to say, but it was more about the philosophy that they understood that what Robin and I do is teach people how to have a meaningful conversation about the music. Right. If that leads to a sale, so much the better. Right, right, right. And more often than not, of course, it does. Of course. Um, And so I came to Pittsburgh. Mm. Wow. So... But all still, so you're still kind of living two creative lives, though, oh, yeah, right? Because totally. you still got kind of the mental switch of classical to jazz. Mm-hmm. So did you bring, did you bring that same uh, sort of dichotomy to Pittsburgh immediately too? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, <laughs> I, I can't, it was funny because the the phone room for the orchestra was half a block away from Heinz Hall mm, mm-hmm. and the Fulton building, mm-hmm. you know, which is now the Renaissance hotel. Right. Right. And so we were, uh, we were in the, the Fulton building half a block away and, you know, big, you know, again, 60 staff, you know, um, telemarketing, it's still not become a four letter word yet. Right, I right, got right. out before that. Happened. Right. Right. Um, and it was great. We had three shifts a day. Um, you know, I, uh, I hired my wife, um, you know, mm-hmm. fresh out of college, she walked in and it's like, hmm, okay. And so now, whatever, 30 some odd years right, later. Right, right. Uh, um, so it was a good place to be. Mm. It was meant to be there. But, you know, there's this little place across the street, uh, right on 6th, called Lizzie Farrell's, mm-hmm. uh, which I'm sure no one remembers. Um, and I, it was a nice little restaurant thing. And I said, man, I should we should produce some jazz here. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> so we did. And I had, you know, Claudio Roditi and Hendrick Merkins and a bunch of other cats come mm. and do little concerts that we did. Right. They're ticketed concerts. And Were you, know. you, were you, how much were you producing the jazz at this point versus performing the jazz? Um, you know, that's also a time when I was, I th- think right in there is when um, my brother's first wife, Kenya, who's a Brazilian singer, still mm-hmm. here in Pittsburgh, mm. Um, the early 90s, this would have been late 80s. Well, it was mid-80s still. So I was doing more things with Claudio Roditi at that time, mm-hmm. a tr- trumpet player from New York. So I was doing some little things on the road, um, playing with my band in different places. Um, for the first year or two at Pittsburgh, I still was producing the Ithaca Jazz Festival. Um, oh, you're still doing the Ithaca? I did that for three okay. or four years in okay. a row. 
um, and went back and did other things there and some right. other stuff in central New York. And, um, but I, I, I wasn't focused as much on playing mm. as I was, um, you know, the, the day gig, so to speak, mm. um, and, um, producing these little concerts and things like that, mm -hmm. trying to take different elements that I learned from what I call the OPAs, the other performing arts, mm. there's mm -hmm. jazz and there's the OPAs, right? <laughs> and. I would, you know, steal, beg, and borrow all the techniques that I'd learned from the OPAs and mm -hmm. try to put it into these little jazz events. Right. I produced a thing in Montebello, New York, for two or three years in a row called Music at the Mansion um, in Racine, Wisconsin, which I produced for over 30 years. Um, it was called the Animal Crackers Series in the, animal, in the Racine Zoo. Mm -hmm. And we did a four or five part concert series every summer um, that I produced and coordinated that. Uh, for over 30 years. Mm. So there's all this other jazz stuff right, I was right. doing too. Um, and it was great working for the Pittsburgh Symphony. Mm. I mean, it was a great experience. I was there for the inaugural season of Lauren Mizell, who's one of my favorite conductors mm. in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, I was there for the inaugural season of Christoph von Dockner in, in Cleveland Orchestra. Mm. You know, So I had these amazing orchestral experiences um, and, and until... Um, uh, Emily Remler, which I may have mentioned this to you at one point, was a great guitar player uh, living in Pittsburgh, dating my brother at the time. And uh, this is now 1987. Mm -hmm. And uh, she calls me on the phone and says, hey, Marius, there's these people on the north side. They, they want to do something with jazz. I, it's, somebody mentioned them and they want me to come over and see the place. Uh, Bill, somebody, Str Strickland maybe? Um, will you go over with me? And I said, well, yeah, pick me up in Heinz Hall at five. Mm. And if we go then, so. How long had you been at the symphony at that point? About two years. About two years, okay. Yeah. Um, and it was funny that I didn't really match the name until I came mm. because I was also doing NEA panels. I okay. was judging grants. Right, right. Which I've done way too many of those. <laughs> but back in those days, it was really a good thing to do. I got to meet a lot of other national right. people. And, you know, because I was, you know, this jazz guy that was working for a major symphony orchestra, I was like in the crosshairs of every panel director. Right, right, <laughs> right, 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 right. You know, yeah. and I would, you know, get an invitation. I did the state arts councils in different states and all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm great experience once again because what what did i get to do i got to read through hundreds of grants mm. look at hundreds of budgets right see the good ones see the bad ones totally see, man. Yeah, yeah yeah are you kidding me man yeah. i was not i mean you're not supposed to copy this stuff but of course i did <laughs> for those ones that were cool right right I mean, and everybody does yeah you know yeah. it's how you learn this right this stuff right. you know and it was really more for kind of not the content but the form mm. you know and mm -hmm. the structure right right um and you know so it was fascinating. So I was on the panel, and I remember the director of the panel told me that I should get in touch with Bill Strickland in Pittsburgh. Mm. But I kind of went in one ear out the other. Right, right, right. And then suddenly Emily's calling and saying, can you come see this place? So that's where the real story begins. Yeah. It was like everything I'd done up until that call, in essence, was was practice mm. was was building up the repertoire right getting the tools yeah. assembled totally, yeah. Man. yeah yeah it, you know i had to do all this different stuff so that i was ready for that phone call mm. mm -hmm. so when you came 
Was, how much of this building was done at that point? Was the, the auditorium wasn't built yet? Was yes, it? it was. It was. Oh, it was. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it was like it was as it is now, pretty much. Yeah, kind of. I mean, there's not, no maybe not there's as full, no, obviously. There's no yeah. kitchen. And, sure. You know, there's you know. Yeah, yeah. It was a different you know, different programming. It's totally different. Yeah. And, you know, breaking up brand new poured concrete. Mm. You know, it's three weeks after the building's built. <laughs> and, you know. Uh, yeah. So this is this is 1987, and the building. Uh, was completed in 86, but the music hall in 87. Mm-hmm. And uh, literally walked in the building and Bill Strickland took us around the whole building. Wow. And we ended up in the music hall. Was there mean, any programming in the music hall at that no. point at all? There's nothing. There's nothing happening. It was all just kind of a dream at that point. Yeah. yeah. And Bill, <laughs> you know, as he, if you've heard him say it, you know, a million times, you know, he said, well, I, and we're, we're, we're standing in, he's standing in the pit mm-hmm. and, um, and Emily and my brother Jay was here as well. There's three, three of us. He said, I built the music hall to do jazz because jazz music saved my life. Mm. Literally. Mm. And he said, but I don't know anything about it. <laughs> sounds right. That sounds, that sounds about right. I mean, yeah. literally yeah, yeah. that was what he said. Yeah. And I, I, I because you got to remember in 1987, coming over here mm. was a very different experience. Right, right. So when Emily and Jay and I were driving here, it's like, where the hell are you taking me? Mm. On the corner where our greenhouse now sits, on the corner corner where the bus stop is, that was a melon bank. Mm. And it was like 40 by 40. They would buzz one person in the bank at a time. Wow. Dig it. Wow. Where the office tower in Macero is and part of the greenhouse, that was literally a burnt out shopping center. Burnt out. Still wow. like in rubble and like homeless people living in it and drug dealers. Literally. Wow. Oh, yeah. There's, we got some great pictures here someplace. Yeah, I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure I got them in a box yeah. somewhere in my office. Yeah. <laughs> right? So yeah. this is where we're going. Right, right. And then. What are you thinking when you're pulling up? Well, I'm thinking, where the. Where are? <laughs> what are you? Emily, you taking me here to get yeah. shot? What, yeah, what, yeah. What did I do? You know? Yeah. <laughs> I, you know. Yeah. But then we come down the street, and I see eighteen fifteen Metropolitan. You got to remember, the building was brand new. Mm. It sparkled. Right. Right. It literally looked like an oasis in the middle of the desert. Mm. The building just sparkled. Yeah. And keep in mind that the paper that got me out of uh, undergrad was Frank Lloyd Rice, one of the greatest jazz musicians. Bring that up again. Yep. 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 So I walk in this building, and you immediately see the 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 writing and nature of it. Unmistakable. Yeah. And of course, Bill, in the course of the tour, told us that Tasso Gonzalez built the building, and he was a student of Mr. Mm -hmm. Wright's. And I'm like, really? (laughs) You got to be kidding me. Yeah. So I knew I was home. I knew mm-hmm. I knew that from the minute mm-hmm. I walked in the door. Mm-hmm. I, I knew that, okay, so I found it. Mm. I get it. <laughs> I get it, man. I get it. I mean, it's like when you have to stop and like trace the thread through what it takes to get to to those moments. Oh yeah, it's deep. You know? It's 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 a it's an amazing, wonderful journey. Mm. And, you know, when you when you kind of see it laid out, you say, oh, yeah, of course, that makes perfect sense. Right, 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 right. You know? 
but yeah, no. So we did it. We did the, the tour. And, but, and, I don't want to move past it yet, though, because I'm just also like, I, that's like one phone call. That you said, eh, oh, I could not for me. I could have said, or, I, I know it's over on the north side. That's not. I'm not, I'm not really yeah. interested. I've got a good yeah. gig here. Yeah, I and got you, a, you know, I got a date tonight. Sorry. I'm yeah, <laughs> I mean, what a, what a testament to to a couple things. One, you know, your openness at the time to just check check sure. things out. Right. Right. Makes a big, totally. huge difference as opposed to being like, I've got my track. I know what I'm doing. Yeah. I'm just going to totally. stick with that. Yeah. Two, the power of not to quote my PR manual here, but the power of environment to shape totally not just your behavior, but also your sense of self, your sense of purpose yeah, totally. to walk into a space that um, redefines the way that you look at the trajectory of your own life all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you think about the power, uh, really, I guess that is a, a, a testament to the power of art, generally, to change how we see ourselves, yes, and to see to see our own lives, yeah, um, it's beautiful. Yeah. It's really beautiful to think about that moment. Oh, and and, yeah. and, and uh, you know, I, I I say this all the time, and you know, um, I to this day walk in the building and see a big blank white canvas mm. every day. Mm. You know. Um, Every day. There's no two days that are the same. It is like a constantly evolving piece of art. Wow. You know? Yeah. So I knew, man, when I yeah. walked in the building, I didn't even need I didn't even need to take the tour. Mm. Right, right. <laughs> I, I, I just needed to know what what do I need to say so that I'm coming back here tomorrow. Mm. Wow. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, to get back to the music hall. So Bill says I built a music hall to do jazz concert because jazz music saved my life, but I don't know anything about it. Right, right. So I, I literally said, uh, 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 Mr. Strickland, uh, <laughs> we, we, we need to talk. Right. And so he looks at me, as you may have seen, but back then it was laser. Mm. He looked me in the eyes and he said, tomorrow morning, 9 a.m., mm. literally. I said, yes, sir, um, and stayed up all night on my Mac Lisa computer, mm. mm-hmm. which I still have. Yeah. Um, I don't think it works, but I still have it. Um, and wrote a proposal, my little dot matrix printer mm. of why he had to hire me, mm. uh, which I still have. Did he have? Did he have even a sense when 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 he said, "You know, I built this this auditorium for jazz"? Was there even a sense of like, and it needs to be this program, and there needs to be nothing? It was just like, I'd like to hear music in this yeah, space, please. Pretty much. Yeah. How quickly did those? sort of the, the pillars of what it needed to be start clicking in your head for that proposal? Was it while you were still in the building? It, it, it had been instantaneous. Mm. Mm. Was it was it something, do you, re, do you remember if it was something that was already in your mind before you'd even been here? It's like, oh, wouldn't it be nice if? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I, I had begun to envision what a jazz subscription series could mm. be. Mm-hmm what a uh, uh, consistent uh, presenting um, model could look like mm-hmm. and how to tie educational opportunities into that for mm-hmm. audience development. Because mm. you, know, you knew things, yeah. you got to care about the music and you're right. not going to care if you don't take the time to learn it. And yeah. If, yeah. if you're not feeding the next generation of, in this case, classical music lovers mm-hmm. 
was just what I was learning. How the, how are they sustaining their programs? Mm -hmm. So these educational programs, right. these awareness things, all that kind of stuff. I said, man, imagine if we do that with jazz, mm -hmm. right? Right. So in my proposal, it was three pages and it outlined all of this stuff mm. that I wanted to do. Mm. And Bill. And you brought that with you the next yeah. day? The next day. Okay. And I sat in his office, just he and I, and he, you know, Bill looked through it and said, this is great, but I don't have any money for it. Mm. And I said, I don't care. Mm. I don't care. And, um, and I was, you know, making ridiculous bread at mm -hmm. the Pittsburgh Symphony at the time because it was largely based on volume. Right, right. We were doing millions. Right. So um, I said, I don't care, man. I, I you know. Uh, uh, and he basically gave me these keys that are in my pocket today. <laughs> Here's the keys to the front door. Have a nice life. Wow. Pretty much. Yeah. That was pretty much it. Yeah. And then, you know, through a series of conversations the following days, you know, we decided, you know, a couple concerts we were going to try. And, you mm. know, he found a little change from the PCA. Did you Did you quit the symphony right then? Um, it was a few weeks later. A few yeah. weeks later. Okay. Yeah. I gave him my notice. Did you have any apprehension about that? No. 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 And it, no hard feelings with the sure. symphony and stuff. Um, as it turned out, I had a gig playing at the public theater. Um, with Max Roach, they were doing a, the Harry Ape, which is an August Wilson play mm -hmm. that they were premiering, mm -hmm. and it was just for guitar and percussion. And the guitarists couldn't do one week of the run, so I did fill in. So I had that week run, uh, which I was going to be off from the symphony anyways. Right. And then I gave him two weeks, and I was working here already, mm -hmm. even when mm -hmm. I was at you know kind of transitioning to get stuff happening, and. Um, at the time they wanted to kind of change up some things in what we were doing anyways. Right. right. So it was, I mean, it was a, it was mutual and right. it was, I was on the PSO insurance for like two years because mm. there was no insurance here. There of was course, no right. healthcare. Right. There was no anything. I, do, I don't even, they couldn't even find an employment letter for me until two years after I was actually here. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's, you know, I always fight with HR. They said, well, no, you actually started in 89. Well, how did I produce the series in 87? <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, we don't have it. I said, I know you don't. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. Was, it was, it was a cash accounting system back right, then. There's right. no accrual. It was right. all cash. Right. Right. <laughs> wow. Wow. But, but I have to imagine finding purpose and clarity replaced the sort of security of, oh, totally. of a predictable. I was never worried. Yeah. Yeah. I was never worried. Yeah. It took me, um, I figured this out once like 14 or 15 years to make what I was making at the symphony. <laughs> it's funny, right? <laughs> Maybe longer yeah. than I think wow. about it, but uh, who cares, man? Yeah. It's, if I was into this for money, I would be into something else. Right. Right. You right. know, it's, right. that's not the point of this is our, our, um, our ability to have how grateful I am to be part of preserving the legacy mm. of jazz. Mm. I mean, that's what we do here. Right. Right. You know? Right. And, um, that I knew was something that we would be able to, uh, do in a meaningful way. Cause Bill's spirit is just that. Mm. How long was it from here, Bill, here's this proposal to lights up first show. A couple months, a couple months. Mm -hmm. And in that time, was how much of it was negotiating, getting the axe for a theater that 
technically doesn't even exist yet. And then also filling the seats. Yeah, it was it was full court press from the beginning. Mm. Um, fortunately, um, Nathan Davis was in town mm -hmm. at the time running the program at Pitt. Mm -hmm. He was the director. And um, he was part of kind of a little bit of a think tank that Bill had when he was building the center. Um, and so Nathan got Donald Byrd, you know, as one of the first kind of paid concerts um, uh, to come and do something. And, you know, um, of course, I knew Billy Taylor well from New York, and, and he and I did panels together at jazz conferences mm. talking about how jazz should be presented as a subscription series mm. format. Mm. So Billy was actually the reference that I gave Bill because mm. Bill said, you know, this looks great on paper, but uh, right. you got any references? Right, right. And uh, so I told him, well, you know Billy Taylor? And he goes, yeah, as a matter of fact, I do. So he called Billy. Mm. And Billy, Billy, as Bill will tell the story, Billy said, yeah, I know him. Hire him before he changes his mind. Mm. And uh, which is a pretty good reference. Yeah. And Billy yeah. is obviously a main mentor of both Bills and mine. And I didn't know that oh, at the time. Okay. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. That, you know, when Bill was a kid, he saw Billy Taylor play at the Civic Arena. Mm. And Bill tells the story great. And he said, I want to be like him. Mm. I want that elegance and sophistication and grace. So it's, it was very fortuitous that Billy, uh, you know, to this day is a mentor to both of us. Yeah. You know? What was the first show? Um, the first show that I produced here was with um, Donald Byrd and Nathan Davis. Um, was it, how, how, how big an audience were you able to? Oh, it was full. It was full it was from full. the beginning. Yeah. Was, do you think you were tapping into an unfulfilled appetite in the city no in that question. moment? Yeah. No question. Yeah. Um, there was Walt Harper's uh, uh, an amazing uh, kind of jazz impresario, good piano player, had a uh, national act jazz club in town. Mm -hmm. So he would bring in national acts. Um, there was not a lot of concertizing mm -hmm. of jazz then. So it was definitely a void that um, uh, we, we filled right. fairly right. quickly. Um, so, cause by the second year we were doing the living master series and I'd bring in, you know, Ahmad Jamal for five, five days. Wow. We'd do five shows wow. and, you know, Tito Puente and Joe yep. Williams and McCoy Tyner, all those, you know, legends, mm. uh, would be in town for five shows. Wow. And we'd be, that's like unheard of now. Oh yeah, man. Yeah. You couldn't, there's, there, there isn't an artist out there that can do five shows. One spot. No, right. Not in Pittsburgh in here. No Anywhere, way. really. I mean, you don't see somebody saying, I'll be, there's five shows to choose from. Yeah, I mean, you know, there in certain jazz clubs at the Blue Note and stuff, and artists sure. will be in and do that, you know, with a much bigger market. But at the market size at Pittsburgh, that's why you don't see a lot of jazz shows at the mm -hmm. Benedum and Heinz mm -hmm. Hall, because it's, you know, it's 3,000 seats. Right, right. Like, who can fill that? Right. You know, right. George Benson, you know, Herbie mm -hmm. Hancock, maybe, mm -hmm. Winton. That's a, you know, you can count on one right, hand. Right, 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 right. <laughs> but back in the day, you know, when Ray Brown and Stanley Turrentine and Mel Jackson and Carmen McRae and Astrid Gilberto, I mean, when they were all those photos in the green room wall, mm -hmm. man, they were all here for five shows, wow. pretty much all of them. Wow. What What was their reaction to coming in here? They fell in love with it. Yeah. You know, the fact that we could say that this place was built for you. Mm. Right. Right. You know, where did This it, isn't a restaurant that we happened to... Right. Make some stage space, you know. Yeah, um, and it was a concert hall. Mm. You know, as Bill says, they come in the front door, not the back door. Mm -hmm. 
uh, we feed them like royalty, mm-hmm. right? I mean, they get the best of the best when mm-hmm. they eat, you know, uh, their meal. Um, you know, it's a mm-hmm. concert Steinway. It's not, you know, it's right. They they loved it, and they became our marketing arm. Mm. So by my third year here, I didn't have to explain the place to anybody. Mm. First couple of years, it's like it took sure, a minute. Sure. And I had to call in friends and say, hey, man, could you tell Ahmad Jamal that it's okay to come and play? You know, it, it was some of <laughs> right, that right, right. with, you know, the Todd Barkins of the world, the right. Frank Moffatanos and these other, you know, legendary presenters of the yeah. music that yeah. were my mentors. Um, they would call and say, to, I remember Todd called Johnny Griffin, who's a, a legendary bebop saxophonist, mm, but mm-hmm. old school as it comes, right? Right. And uh, he had to make the dial to get Johnny to come and play for this, you know, young white kid in Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> right? You know, there's yeah. that too. Yeah, yeah. Right? So, uh, but that only took a couple of years mm. and it was, oh, MCG, you know, yeah, of right. course we want to come. Right, right. Were you were you doing any of the educational stuff up front? We did. We started the what is now School of Swing. Mm-hmm. It was third grade jazz with you know Joe Negri and, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. all that. We we did that. I think the second year. We oh wow! Oh, so from yeah. the beginning, it's always yeah. been always yeah. been in there. Was was some of that also? I mean, you mentioned that when you first started in college, that that education was part of your major. Mm-hmm. Were, were there things there that? you kind of logged away that you were able to apply later on? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And most of it was how not to do it, mm. you know? Um, because that was all classical well, and, it, and all of that, it, regimented. It, it, it just was stiff. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, and that's not that classical music is stiff. It's just the approach that at least the teachers, some of the teachers I had, um, was not that engaging. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I I always felt that with young people, especially, right. it's got to be engaging. Right, right. You can't just um, play it and expect they're going to get it. Right. You know, you have to make it something that they can they can walk through the door. Right. You don't have right. to push them through the door. Right. Right. You know? Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, when when are we recording things? Are we starting to record right right out of the gate? Pretty right much? out of the gate. Was yeah. that in your proposal that we would record? Oh yeah. yeah, and that we would. Um, I think I had the radio show in there. I had all kinds of all stuff of it, in there. Right. And we've we've realized everything on that list. Wow, and ten times more. Right, wow. And so Bill had the presence of mind when you know he built the building to put an analog eight track mm. and an analog two track recorder. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's what there was back right, then. Right, right, right. And uh, so yeah, we started recording right from the jump, and then I think two years in. Um, I was able to switch to DAT recording, digital recording. Mm-hmm. Um, and then two years or three years after that, we went to multi-track digital. Mm-hmm. And we were beta testing for Tascam and mm-hmm. first out of the box with DA88 machines that we were sending back every other week. Mm-hmm. And it was I, it was cool, uh, but I'm really happy to just be industry standard right. these days. Right, right, right. I just do my nice little Pro Tools rigs right, right. and can take my little drives anywhere in the world yep. and they work. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> you know, yeah. but and there wasn't that back then. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, right. talking 34, 33 years ago, 35 years ago when we started, right. that didn't exist. Right. So, uh, but we did start capturing both audio and with photographs. Mm-hmm right from the beginning. Right. Um, 
which in hindsight was a godsend. Right, right, right. You know, for so many reasons. Yeah, to have that record, but also to have to have that resource. Yeah, you know that that I know we're still talking about what more we could do with it. Sure, you know, and 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 to be able to lean on that. Yeah, you know, has been has been really valuable. What did it, what did it feel like to you if you if you can kind of go back to that those decades back to be standing in the concert hall, full seats, music playing, and to know that you basically made it made it happen. It was an honor. I mean, it really continues to be. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't. You know, everybody says, "Well, what's your what's your favorite concert?" And it's like the next one mm. for real mm-hmm. the next one i'd gotten to a point um you know i talk about this you know with my wife and my you know my, my brother a little bit over the years it was maybe a year or two or three that i really got to that marriage point where i was as happy on the bandstand as i was presenting the music mm. there's a mm-hmm. certain um kind of euphoric thing that happens when you're on the bandstand right 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 you know when you're playing and you're in the middle of it and everything is just swinging perfectly Mm -hmm. and you're kind of one with the instrument and with the cats on the bandstand right and it's a feeling that i can't really put into words i know yeah i know what you mean yeah 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 and i i got to that here a couple years in Mm. that presenting you know, Dizzy and Carmen and Max and mm. Yvonne Leans, you know, Louis Belson, you know, presenting all my idols mm. basically f- gave me the same kind of euphoric um, feeling as mm. it did on the bandstand, mm-hmm. right? Are you familiar with the artist way? A little bit. It's going to be countdown to when I bring up the artist way because yeah. <laughs> it's happened in a, multiple times. She talks about in there the tension between being the artist and facilitating Mm -hmm. other artists yeah yeah and how for some people they become the facilitator because they're too scared to be the performer Mm -hmm. and for some people they become the performer and they're a nightmare for the facilitator because that's all they know is how to just perform it sounds to me like you've done something that is uncommon which is occupy both of those spaces with the same uh, not just enthusiasm and competency, but also pleasure. Mm-hmm. Because I think a lot of times people get into the facilitating and they're just sad because they would rather be on the stage. Does that does that feel like a you're going back and forth between I'm going to perform now and now, or is it, it does it feel like it's one one Marty? It it does now. It yeah. didn't. I mean, I wholeheartedly admit I had those feelings a lot. Mm. It's like. Oh man, I'm never going to be the big jazz star, mm. you know. If I keep just doing this administrative side of right. it, and so th- those thoughts went back and forth in my mind for years, mm. um, and you know, probably creeped in, you know, ten or fifteen years ago, mm. and then I realized that no, man, I, I'm not going to be Pat Metheny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't play well enough, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. When I should have been doing some other homework in undergrad, I was booking bands and stuff right. when I could have been shedding more or transcribing more right. doing that. Um, but you know, 
as the story goes, by the time I got to college, I'd already been on the bandstand a lot more than my teachers, mm. some of them, mm. mm-hmm. you know, right. from eight years old. So right. I didn't, I didn't have the same drive to keep practicing the, that some minutia. Mm. Mm-hmm. So what I've been able to focus on musically is a handful of things that I do really, really well. Mm-hmm. I'm not all things to everybody, guitarist, right, right, that right. can play anything backwards. Right. But there's certain things that I do that I do really well. Mm. And, and I, I have focus to imagine that that brings uh, a sensitivity to you as the producer mm-hmm. that would not necessarily be there for somebody who doesn't know what it feels like to get the calluses on their fingers right. or to have to play it a fourth time through. You know, that it adds that, that, color and nuance to that facilitator role as sure. well. And I've, I've only put myself in musical um, environments that I know I can shine in. Mm-hmm. You know, that's part of producing the records. Right. It, you know, if if I've got a solo, a great example is on the Anne Hampton Calloway um, Christmas record we did. There was a certain tune and it, it was going to be a guitar solo. And I said, that's not me. Mm. And I got Chuck Loeb to do it, mm-hmm. you know. I, you know, I got Joe Nagri to do something on one of the other records, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But if it's a Brazilian comp or some other things that I do, you know, as good as anybody, then I'll do it. Mm. But I'll, fortunately, and I, you know, I tell my brother this, please shoot me if I ever get to the point where I'm doing it, but I shouldn't be doing mm-hmm. it, <laughs> you know. Uh, so for now, I think I'm still cool. But, um, you know, that that was an interesting moment where, presenting the music was as much of a, a thrill mm. as playing on the bandstand and mm-hmm. i'm totally comfortable with that now yeah. i play when i want to play with who i want to play with and usually it's just the music i want to play mm. mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? yeah yeah and and i'm fine with that i don't i've been on the road you know we just produced a big tour with the smithsonian band mm-hmm. all over the world that i played and it, it, it the, the the romance of doing the one-nighters around i've done that mm-hmm. uh not as much as many but i've done it enough right. to know that i don't need it right right i, I let them come to me <laughs> and i enjoy them in our living room right right and i get just as much thrill with 350 of my friends mm-hmm. in the music hall watching Dee, Dee bridgewater mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so when you think about that history uh here now at, at mcg jazz and you're looking forward where do you see where do you see jazz going in a next generation and kind of in a you know we just we're just celebrating now with a a fully renovated music hall which looks gorgeous by the way Mm -hmm. um what where do you see it kind of moving in the next 5 10 15 years jazz has become a very eclectic mix of style genre mm-hmm. um you know as we were talking earlier you know back in the day 25 plus years ago there was these jazz legends that created the music that mm-hmm. we call jazz mm-hmm. that have been here over the last 35 years um they're gone mm. you literally can count on one hand the, the folks that are around that created the music as we know it today right and even some of them are really kind of second generation, mm. you know, folks in their 60s and 70s. They're not Ray Brown right, right. or Herbie Mann or Dave Brubeck, who mm-hmm. would be like I'm 108 or something now. Or, right, you know, right, 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 right. Uh, so um, 
I see the music becoming um, very mixed in the musical offerings that we're going to need to present here. Mm. You know, as again, back in the day, I could put Dizzy and Carmen and Max and Tito Puente on a concert series and I'd sell it out. Right, right. With two ads in the PG and some Tony Mowat on the radio. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Direct mail. Right. Now, as you know, in marketing, there is so much competition for leisure time, for eyeballs on phones Mm -hmm. and this and that. And every little subgenre of jazz has its little niche. Mm -hmm. Some people only like the singers, but only singers that do this. Mm. You know, some people like the saxophone, but they... They, they're, they're not Kenny Garrett's saxophone. They're Houston Person's mm, saxophone. Mm-hmm. You know, there's all these sub-subgenre things. And some people are, you know, eclectic and like a little bit of everything. But I find it being um, kind of splintered off in all these sub-sub things mm. that we're going to need to find ways to um, reach all those folks and find a programmatic mix that um, makes economic sense mm-hmm. at the same time. Right, so right. that little detail. Right, 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 right. Uh, and that it gets, you know, every year, man, we start with zero, which we've done for 35 years, mm. and we push the ball up the hill. Mm-hmm. It sounds, what you're describing makes me think of classical music, which is that you think of like the big names in classical music. I mean, obviously you're talking about hundreds of years as mm-hmm. opposed to decades. But now, you know, classical music it's integrated into other genres. So you'll have rock that happens to have mm-hmm. orchestration kind of underneath or supporting or coming in, or, you know, you think about like the way, um, you know, the Beatles brought in sure. orchestration into a genre that it didn't feel like it belonged in and then made something new. Do you see that happening with jazz and that it's like kind of genre fusing? Oh, totally. Yeah. Man, there's all kinds of kind of, mashups if you will mm-hmm, of, mm-hmm. of you know then it has been for years with sure. jazz with hip-hop and jazz with poetry and jazz with you know this and that um i think the combining of jazz with other types of music other art forms mm. I'm, I'm big on combining jazz and dance you know jazz and fashion we've done mm. jazz and baseball we've mm-hmm. done jazz and magic we've done mm-hmm. you know so i think that our ability to continue to find different um, kind of points of intersection between certain audience mm. and jazz is mm. something we're just going to have fun, mm. you know, continuing yeah. to do. Yeah, you know, jazz and 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 film and video. You know, our new concert hall is, as you know, going to be outfitted with two state-of-the-art projectors um, on these two screens on either side of the stage. There's a million different things we can sure. do, uh, and just with that alone. Right. 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 Yeah. Um, I'm curious, just to go back, back to the past for a minute, is there a particular concert here that stirs the feelings when you think, when you think back? Probably Yvonne Leans. Can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, Well, Yvonne, um, is, you know, you know, I call him the, the, the today's modern Antonio Carlos Jobim, Mm -hmm. you know, he's a brilliant composer, um, and I remember when he walked in the building, he said, the air feels fresher here. Hmm. And um, Which is saying something for this, this part of the city, too. No kidding, yeah. right? <laughs> and he just, I could tell that he, yeah. like me, when he walked in the building, this was walking in the front door. Hmm. Uh, he said it as soon as he got in the building. 
that the place immediately transformed him. Mm. Uh, overnight, he became a Steeler fan. We watched the Super Bowl game mm. uh, together at Mario's on the South Side that year. Mm. Right, 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 <laughs> right. But more importantly, the music that he made, which we captured on Yvonne Lean's Live at MCG, by the way, mm. is, in my opinion, the finest live recording that he's ever done. Mm. Did and you know it when it was happening? Oh, I knew it was magic. Man. Yeah, yeah. I knew it was magic. Yeah. Magic. And I've heard this from many people that they think it's the best live recording. Mm. And, you know, this cat's made dozens and right, dozens right, and right, dozens right. of records and dozens of live things. Um, and um, he just became part of the family. He stayed at my house subsequently and got up every morning and wrote a new tune. Mm. And one of those tunes ended up a few years later on our Nancy Wilson mm. record that won Nancy the Grammy, the first of two Grammys. And she and Yvonne sang it together. Mm. And it was the tune that he wrote one Sunday morning or something in the mm. house. And I just knew that that interaction with Yvonne would turn out to be something beyond I'd ever dreamed because wow. I didn't know him. I'd never met him. My right. brother knew him, but I didn't know him until right. he came here. And uh, it, I knew it was going to be very special. Mm. And, you know, I put that record on and it's like, oh, yeah, I remember. Mm. <laughs> you mm. know, mm -hmm. it, was, it was cosmic. It's amazing. When you uh, think about jazz philosophically, what is it to you that makes it have the place in your life as opposed to the other types of music that either you've dabbled in or encountered and things like that? Quite frankly, jazz is life mm. to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's a phrase and workshops that we do here and all that, but it's true because in, in, in life you have to improvise and you have to take what's given you and make music out of it, mm -hmm. you know, make right. life out of it. Right. And that's what jazz musicians do. Mm. They take what their fellow bandmates or if they're playing solo and they take that moment and they put a crowbar in it and open it up for mm. everybody to see. Mm -hmm. And to be able to improvise in an organic way as the great jazz musicians do mm -hmm. is no different than what we do every day in our lives. Mm. So that philosophy of jazz's life is true. Mm. <laughs> it really mm -hmm. is true to mm -hmm. me that you know, you treat people the way, the way you want to be treated. That's what we do on the bandstand. Right, right. You know, you, you learn things. In jazz, we learn standards and we learn, you know, all this kind of um, scales and all this kind of stuff. You, you learn those things and then you kind of throw them out the window. Mm. And it becomes innate, just like what you do in life. You know, you learn how to drive the car. You learn how to do this. Then that becomes innate and you just focus on the, on the greater understanding that if you, in fact, can embrace the moment, mm. that's all you need. Because mm. you don't know what the next moment's going to be. Right. And on the bandstand, I don't know what the next moment's going to be. Right. So if I just stay in the moment and embrace that, um, chances are the next moment's going to be pretty cool, too.
In Earnest is a production of the Manchester Bidwell Corporation. If you found this conversation moving or inspiring, we'd appreciate your support. Your contribution will go directly to continuing this life-changing work. For more information and to donate, visit manchesterbidwell.org.